well, if you're going to spend $750 million, how do you make sure that residents know that their tax dollars are at work? And so there was really a question that if we're going to spend this kind of money, you had better see it on your way home. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Maurice Cox, Commissioner of Planning and Development for the City of Chicago. Commissioner Cox joins us today to discuss his career in public service and his recent initiatives on the south and west sides of Chicago. Maurice, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's um, wonderful to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us. For the past 21 months or more now, you've been appointed to this office after having served as uh, planning director for the city of Detroit. And I'm interested to know over the course of those uh, 21 months, reflecting on the decision to take your talents to Chicago, um, why the focus on the south and west sides of the city of Chicago? Yeah, that's a great question. I will tell you, I arrived at the beginning of a new administration. Um, Lori Lightfoot was elected, uh, the first woman mayor in many, many years, African-American woman. She was an outside reform candidate. Uh, This is her first time in public office. And she ran uh, on an equity agenda. Uh, She ran with some pretty uh, audacious um, proposals. She spoke of uh, a Marshall Plan for the West and South Side, whose challenge was going to be to undo a half century of racially charged policies that have left the South and West Side behind in what is otherwise a prosperous global American city. And so when she got elected, she went looking outside of the usual places for someone who was, she felt was up to the challenge. And, you know, we're in the Midwest and people here in Chicago hear about things that are going on in Detroit. And a lot of what we were trying to do in Detroit uh, resonated with her. And uh, so her transition team um, reached out to me. And I can remember the first meeting with her uh, when she said, so a Marshall Plan is a pretty big and audacious challenge. How would you begin? And I really reflected on you know, what we could deliver that would signal to um, people who've grown up on and lived their lives on the South and West Side that are largely Latino and African-American, what we could do to signal that this was going to be a very different way to develop, that it was going to be equitable, uh, and that it would lead to a, a season of inclusive growth. And so really, that's uh, my work in the South and West Side emanates from her audacious challenge as a political leader. You've referred in other contexts to a kind of 
Robin Hood agenda, the idea of moving you know, resources from the center mm-hmm. toward these other uh, you know, other communities that have been less well uh, represented or less well invested upon. Mm-hmm. Do you have in the context of your um, administration the, the capacity in a department of planning and development to effect that kind of change? I mean, it strikes me that the city, you know, years ago brought economic development and urban planning together that strikes me as a, a strengthening of the position. And I'm interested to know how the combination of economic development on the one hand and planning, how, how those uh, work together in your view. The reality of how you take a, a downtown loop centric city uh, and begin to structurally organize a department to be able to provide design and development services throughout its entire geography was really uh, at the core of what I needed to do to even get started. So I have uh, about 180 staff. I would tell you 90% of them were focused on the loop and the lakefront. Uh, And I realized that I didn't have an organizational model to even begin to make good on the mayor's promise to give uh, attention to the south and west side. So my first inclination was to reorganize the map of Chicago into seven distinct districts. Um, you might think of them, if you were in New York, they would be considered boroughs. Uh, but there are geographies that allow us to approach the city um, in smaller regions. And then my next challenge was to staff each of them equally with architects, landscape architects, urban designers, city planners, historic preservationists. And and this is a model that I applied in Detroit and found that I needed to do that here. And so I basically took everyone who had a planning degree uh, of that 180 and I redistributed them uh, across the city in these planning teams. Uh, And then I hired a a new cohort. And the other thing is the Economic Development Bureau was, again, focused on deals, primarily uh, downtown, uh, central city uh, deals. And I distributed one of each of them into the regions so that there would be a natural conversation between the center and the edges. And that gave me the infrastructure, if you will, to begin to talk about planning um, across the entire geography. Um, you know, it is unusual to have the economic development and planning entities in the same department. Uh, they were separate in Detroit. So this is really the first time that the tax increment finance, which is the principal way to finance development, in Chicago that I have access to those millions and millions of dollars. Our next move was to begin to create a set aside for the South and West side. Uh, And there have been a lot of interpretations, you know, the increment that's generated in the geography that you create has to be spent there. And you can port from one district to an adjacent district but you cannot leapfrog over geographies. So how to take resources that are generated from the center and distribute them to the 
um, neighborhoods, there's a structural impediment to doing that. One of the ways around that was the, uh, the neighborhood opportunity bonus fund, which allowed uh, developers developing downtown to get additional density and pay into a fund that then could be transferred to the neighborhoods. And we have collected hundreds of millions of dollars through this fund. And it goes specifically to fund small business development, um, open space, and historic preservation, with the largest percentage of that going to small business development. So, um, so the first thing we did was scrub all of these tax increment finance districts to come up with $250 million that would be distributed in 10 neighborhood geographies on the west and south side of Chicago, traditionally areas that are grossly under-resourced. And on top of that, the mayor had about a dozen departments and sister agencies scrub their budgets to find $500 million to begin to talk about parks, schools, uh, roads, small business development, arts and culture. And so the Invest Southwest strategy, um, which is fueled by $750 million, was launched. It was launched 30 days uh, after I got here. Uh, it was moving really fast. And uh, once again, this question about, well, if you're going to spend $750 million to leverage private development, where do you start, right? Um, and how do you make sure that the residents know that their tax dollars are at work and transformation is happening? And so there was really a question that if we're going to spend this kind of money, you had better see it on your way home. And so I started with my staff looking at, well, what were the places where everyone has to pass through uh, and on their way home. And the commercial corridors were a natural uh, vehicle for where we should concentrate the effort. And by the way, Chicago is blessed with an amazing transit system. So what if we located uh, this redevelopment in uh, adjacent to transit? Um, so it's really, uh, it harks back to the kind of neighborhood Main Street uh, could we reimagine those main streets in the 21st century uh, supported by transit with uh, a mix of uses with the local amenities and start there and then backfill all of those other things that we know to help neighborhoods thrive afterwards. And so that's how we started uh, this big audacious challenge. I'm interested in this notion of the map, right? So as you say, you, it, it, is, it is your, we could call it your leadership style now, the number of different roles you've been in as a public figure over the course of your career. You don't waste time. And so very quickly, uh, focusing on this Invest Southwest strategy, moving millions and millions of dollars uh, from the center into these neighborhoods that have been underinvested upon. I'm interested in the focus on the map as the instrument 
and the the reconciling of not just organizational charts and you know who reports to who, but the idea that there's a geography. It reminds me a little bit of what Sean Donovan said when he uh, was appointed as Secretary of Housing and Urban uh, Development in the Obama administration. He said, you know, when 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 the government spends resources, we don't tend to map them and see their correlation. And when mm. we make an investment in education, it's likely to be an investment in transportation, and transportation education are linked in people's lives, right? So so in that regard, I'm struck by the focus on the map and the idea of the need, you know, the necessity of reorganizing not only your own staff and growing your capacity, but also changing the way that they're spatially deployed. In that sense, um, of course, there's a, a long, interesting history about that. As you're thinking about Main Street, as you're thinking about these commercial centers, you're thinking about transit, and you're moving through, as I understand it, uh, grants, among other things, millions of dollars to businesses. What are the kinds of things that you're looking for beyond transit adjacency and being a part of that um, commercial district, apart from the geography of them, what, what are the kinds of businesses that strike you as appropriate or have been found most uh, useful in that uh, set of resources? So this is, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, much of this idea of how do, how do you live uh, a urban life in which you can access all of your daily necessities within a 20 minute walk from your home. Uh, and this is an idea that I piloted in the Motor City, Detroit, because I knew it was radical. The idea of walking to anything in Detroit had long since, they've lost that sensibility. And so I said, you know, I'm originally a New Yorker and I spent significant time in Europe and in Italy where I biked and walked um, everywhere. And uh, I think that that is a, a sign of just good urban life to be able to live a car-free existence. Uh, and so I started saying, well, like, uh, what do I need? And can I walk there to get it? And, you know, this is not anything new. I suspect if you live in Cambridge, you live in a 20-minute neighborhood. Most of us who were very fortunate to live in urban walkable areas uh, during COVID could walk to a grocery store. Uh, I know the Chicago neighborhood that I live in, I can walk to a number of grocery stores. I could go to my medical appointments on foot. So it gets back to this idea uh, of living in urban villages. Uh, and, you know, it's a strange thing. Uh, I think COVID taught us that people say, well, what is going to be the future of cities uh, post-COVID? Well, I guarantee you it's one of it is going to, can we walk to those essential services that we need? And do we have, you know, broadband internet access? It was through that notion that what do you need? Well, you need a bakery. Uh, maybe you need, uh, you know, a coffee house. Uh, you need a grocery store, you need a place to get your pharmacies. Um, and so the program by which we can get entrepreneurs in those storefronts, many of them boarded up on these commercial corridors, was the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund, which was that, that transfer from the downtown to small businesses in the neighborhoods on the south and west side. And so Part of it was, uh, how do you get those businesses, and I'm talking about restaurants, you know, family restaurants, the fine dining restaurants, the pizza parlors. I mean, all of those things that are just a part of 
uh, living a really wonderful urban life. And in so many places in Chicago, they've been denied access to those. That was what we were going to focus on. So, you know, the idea was to congregate or aggregate those businesses in what might be a, like a micro district, you know, no more than four to six to eight blocks along. And, you know, the challenge is that people had not tied those amenities to a walkable geography. They were funding small businesses long before I got here, but they, the, those businesses could pop up anywhere in the city. Uh, and so they were spread out so far that you couldn't actually see that there was any synergies happening because of proximity. And then I came in, I said, no, we're going to create a geography uh, and it's going to be no more than eight, you know, it's like a half mile, the longest geography. And we're going to, we're going to encourage all of those entrepreneurs <laughs> to kind of go in that space. And then guess what? We're going to come back and we're going to transform the public realm and those little sidewalks. We're going to double the size of the sidewalks. Uh, we're going to put in other modes of transit on those corridors. We're going to create a pedestrian um, lighting so that the that you can linger in public space. And so it was very much tied to just getting folks to aggregate things. And if it's going to be multifamily housing, well, we're going to force it to happen on the commercial corridors. That's really been the framework. Uh, now, again, Chicago is a, is a city of neighborhoods, 77 community areas, and it has amazingly vibrant commercial corridors, most of which um, are in the north side of town. And, you know, Chicago is, I don't know if it's different, but that early, you know, 20th century development where uh, theaters were not just congregated downtown, they were dispersed in all 77 neighborhoods. Uh, so you see these cultural amenities in, you know, in your just your ordinary neighborhood. And so many of those buildings are still there. Uh, they've been shuttered, you know, they, they've been defaced. And so when I started to talk about how do you, where do we start? Um, we would get intel from residents who inevitably would talk about some beautiful Art Deco mercantile building that was shuttered or a firehouse that was no longer in use or a, a theater or an old bank building. And so even with that, in people's mind, a geography was a place. It wasn't a map. It was a place. And so we would pin those things. And the Invest Southwest initial investments, which are focused on the 100% corner of a neighborhood that just happens to have a fire station or an old bank building or theater is really where we decided to cluster the initial investment. And of course, you know, we also, it's focused around selling public land, which also, you know, is often clustered in those areas. So, um, you know, you go from first creating the, the, the geography, then the, the street in the micro district, and then the 100% corner. 
and I would say part of this is also a way of having some accountability. Uh, I can now tell you what the economic development, the health of economic development in the West region or the far South region, because we created these geographies. And we are in the process actually during our budget period of uh, listing all of the planned developments, all of the neighborhood opportunity fund businesses, all of the neighborhood economic act development activity, we are going to map it for the first time. The aldermen will not get a spreadsheet. They're gonna get a physical map with impact areas according to the investment that has been had. And I will now be able to say to an alderman, we have been able to bring $100 million of investment to your area or $200 million. And here are the projects and here are their geographies. And I hope that my focus on aggregating and centering that investment so that they, there's a synergy will become you know, visible to, to them uh, really for the first time. In that context, I'm, I'm interested in, and this builds a little bit also the work you did on Detroit about the role of philanthropy, right? So it's, it's the, as you said, the intersection between what the city can provide, what the public sector can do with its resources and its, its bully pulpit and its uh, first mover advantage, let's put it that way, right? By identifying it within the map, this is the spatial focus. And then building through these RFPs, the capacity for the development community to respond in a robust way over time, that also has the virtue of uh, producing wealth over time, mm -hmm. presumably, right? I mean, as we know, in, in an individual way, right? Home ownership has been among the most valuable ways of producing you know, intergenerational wealth for, for all Americans. And of course, not all Americans have had access to that as a history of you know, racist redlining and exclusionary practices and lack of access to loans, et cetera. In that context, I'm interested in the role of philanthropic organizations, uh, both in your work in Detroit, but now in Chicago, you've focused on the, the role of foundations in supporting and engaging in the development of the city. And I'm interested in that, particularly given Chicago's historic resources, its extraordinary wealth of you know, the, the range of different foundations that are there. Um, and I wonder if, if there are aspects of the philanthropic community that you imagine could play a, a more supportive role, or have you found the philanthropic community to be available to the kind of uh, focus of you and Mayor Lightfoot's administration? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So I'm, you know, I'm coming from Detroit where uh, the Kresge Foundation uh, has stood up a model, which I think a, a lot of place-based foundations have uh, looked to for inspiration because they were heavily, heavily focused on catalytic investments in one city. And I think all things, all things good about Detroit, you know, in its urban evolution uh, can be traced uh, to Kresge. The Kresge Foundation, of course, you know Dan Gilbert, the billionaire, also uh, is a big part of the kind of philanthropic uh, reinvestment in the city. Um, but Kresge was doing it first. So whether it's an investment in gap financing for development, whether it's uh, the riverfront uh, work or you know uh, light rail work, it was a model. Uh, philanthropic investment that I had never seen before. So I came to Chicago with an expectation um, with some of the national foundations here 
that, you know, they similarly were invested in the built and natural environment of the city. Um, and it actually turned out that you have a lot of national foundations in Chicago. So they're headquartered in Chicago, but they are national and global. And they actually don't focus exclusively on the built and natural environment of Chicago. Uh, but I found a few, uh, like the Pritzker Trobot Foundation, and they, they were the sponsors of the Chicago Prize, uh, which was a $10 million prize to a development entity um, working on the South and West Side. They have been incredibly generous in, in working with me on defining equitable design excellence and coming up with, uh, I have uh, an amazing pre-qualified list of designers who will work on these catalytic investments. Uh, again, that foundation supported the creation of that list. Then you have the Chicago Community Trust, which is probably closer to uh, a Kresge Foundation because uh, it is a community trust and they helped create the SIMD. The, uh, the developer network, they created the pre-development fund. Um, they basically, their role was to, to level the playing field uh, and to resource the kind of systemic change that's needed to create a kind of inclusive, um, equitable kind of development framework. So it's, it's the combination of the ability for uh, philanthropy to level the playing field, the private sector to, to build up the public sector to create the opportunity. And when they are all in conversation, um, I think you, you get transformational, um, sustained change. Uh, and so, but, you know, I'm talking about philanthropy making grant dollars available to commercial real estate developers. That's a little different, right? <laughs> uh, and so, um, but they found a way and that's that we're, we're not just trying to rebuild the community development ecosystem. We're trying to rebuild the commercial real estate development um, ecosystem. And they found a way to fund that work. It's interesting what you say about, you know, needing, you know, both sides of that house, right? Both, mm -hmm. it's, it's not simply just, the, you know, or, or all three in the model that you're giving us, mm -hmm. which is the role of the public sector, the role of the philanthropic, and then the role mm -hmm. of the of the private sector. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we had a, a, a conversation with Rip Rapson of Kresge Foundation, precisely on this, the role of the foundation in place-based uh, gifting. And one of the things he focused on was the, the ability for the foundation to look beyond a quarter or a, a or an annual cycle, you know, the ability the ability because of their investment, their you know ethical and and otherwise investment in a place, they can afford both to mitigate some longer term risk, but also to bridge because as, as you're describing, so many aspects of the um, built environment have to do with gaps between incentives, motivations, uh, reinsurance markets, or amortization schedules. And the, the fact that the foundation will be here, uh, you know, allows at least for Rapson and Kresge to think a little bit longer term and to bridge between, uh, to be ahead of the development cycle to provide these, you know, pre-development funds. Yeah, I think that, you know, in a phrase, it's called patient capital. Uh, and they have the patience and the capital 
to be around for the long term. And you're, and it has, they have a high degree of flexibility, right. Uh, that they can exercise. And so you, you need those, you need those dollars. Um, and I, as I said, I think that Kresge, they, they were uh, my thought partners uh, in, in looking at the systems aspect of change. And I'll, I'll show, I'll brag on one initiative that we're very proud of. Uh, it's the Mary Grove College, uh, which is a like a 130-acre campus uh, in the north side of Detroit. And it educated generations of African-Americans. And it, through financial hardship, was closing. And Kresge went in and did an autopsy of it and found uh, how they could salvage their, their higher education charter, but how they could expand uh, that to get all the way to pre-K um, and then K through 12 and then college. And so that campus is now being converted to a zero to 22 um, full educational campus uh, with a beautiful new um, early childhood learning center by uh, Marlon Blackwell. And, you know, they said, we're gonna invest $200 million on this campus. Uh, and they could do that uh, in that experiment which is uh, pretty singular in terms of having those various uh, educational um, offerings at one single campus. Um, they have the capital, which is patient enough to live that experiment out. Uh, and by the way, it, you know, it's right adjacent to the um, Fitzgerald quarter square mile strategy that um, Detroit is still building uh, where Flowering meadows are right adjacent to rehab houses that are adjacent to a multi-acre park and the greenway that connects that neighborhood to the um, Marygrove campus. So it, it's always it's always fascinating to see the facility by which they could move, uh, where there was an interesting urban experiment going on. Uh, and that they could be our partners in it. And I, you know, I, I, it's, it's important. And I'm blessed to have that partnership with uh, a couple of foundations in Chicago. I would like to have more. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of philanthropic foundations and place-based patient capital, now would be a good time to remind our listeners we are brought to you in part by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, among, among others. Um, I'm interested to um, focus a, a little bit now on the role of design and design excellence. And in our conversation, we've talked about the role of the, the public sector and, and your office and the mayor's initiatives, um, how to leverage you know, TIF financing and to read draw the map, et cetera. But time and time again, your work uh, in this conversation, but in your career more broadly, has drawn upon uh, designers, um, you know, on the one hand, either is, you know, your work has focused on the, the role of design um, and in the, uh, the, the model that I see you articulating and I've seen in your work uh, in Detroit, um, the, the, the role of design is, is multiple. That on the one hand, you have, you know, uh, 
fee for services professionals, you know, responding to RFPs, you know, engaging with proposals. You're also drawing upon the the resources, the the intellectual and cultural capacity of designers to give pro bono their services and their moral authority to put it in those terms. Um, I think you've embodied as much as anyone I know in the history of the American city, the idea of the designer as a elected or appointed public official. You and your colleagues have recently announced uh, the formation of a, a committee on design. I, I take this to be an advisory committee. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that and why you think uh, an advisory committee on design excellence might be helpful in the context of your work in Chicago. Yeah, this is a, this has been a, a life, a life vocation, a pursuit uh, of how how do you bring the resources that we all know uh, design can bring to places that are unexpected? You know, and, and design has often been thought of as a luxury and people pay handsomely to have designers shape their world. And so we know that there's something special there. Uh, and the question has always been, how do I get more people to have, a, have access to that, in particularly places where design is, has done enormous harm uh, to communities uh, through public policy primarily. And so I have always, you know, I've always felt, you know, I'm, I'm in a very elite profession and I've always wanted it to serve broadly more people. And so how do you do that? Well, one thing is the public interests, the public sector. You know, we are responsible for the streets. We are, you know, responsible supporting housing and and cultural institutions. So if I could uh, direct resources to things that are public, my chances were going to be greater in having an impact everyone. Uh, and so partly why I've dedicated so much of my career to the public sector. Uh, the other thing was, how do you get designers uh, and very uh, thought leaders, and many of them are in academic institutions, uh, how do you get them to extend their thought to the everyday places where people live? Um, and how do you engage them in the messy work of producing excellence. And so, you know, early in my career, I realized that cities are governed by committees uh, and not just your city council. They're like a whole slew of committees that are appointed by people uh, in authority and they manage aspects of the city for us on our behalf. And almost all of them are, you know, pro bono services. And so I started saying, well, if design is a value and if it's important, you need to have forums where you talk about it. And those forums are often these committees, um, these volunteer committees. And so the most noted ones that people have is the planning commission, right? Uh, but you know, planning commissions talk about zoning and land use. You know, sometimes they talk about design, but not really. Uh, and I said, you know, well, where is the conversation about design in Chicago? I mean, I'm talking about the public conversation. And I couldn't 
find it short of special events like the biannual of architecture or the Chicago Architecture Center that you know, uh, is an advocacy organization for design and they have exhibits. But in terms of in the political arena, uh, there was no place other than the plan commission. And so I started to say, well, if design is of a value in a design center city like Chicago, we need to have a committee, a public forum where all we talk about is design, uh, unapologetically because we're talking about the built-in natural environment. And I've, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've served on these kind of committees. I've appointed these kind of committees um, in my career. And I said, you know, what if I called the best and the brightest in design and development in, in arts and culture in Chicago? And I asked them to serve on a committee. And instead of having only a professional planning staff reviewing the pipeline of projects that come uh, before my staff, what if I had them reviewing the work? <laughs> and, uh, and so the Committee on Design was formed and it is a big culture change for Chicago to have this type of structure. It's not so uncommon, you know, Boston has it, Seattle has it, you know, Vancouver, I was actually surprised that Chicago, the third largest city in America, did not have a peer-to-peer -peer review um, process. And so uh, it's taken me as long as I've been here to stand it up. Uh, but just to let you know how, what an appetite there was for this, um, we put out a solicitation. Uh, we thought we were going to appoint a, uh, like a 12-member body. Um, we got 85 applications, 85 applications from Chicagoans. And in the end, we ended up appointing 24. And they are some of the most prominent names in the arts and culture and design community of Chicago. And presumably something like, uh, you know, half or more of those 85 would have been well qualified. And of that, you had the luxury of selecting two dozen. That's extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. And and, uh, you know, and they have names, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, many, many of them were educated by the GSD. You have Eugenie Gangs and uh, John Ronan and amazing people like the Astor Gates and the artist Nick Cave and um, prominent development folks as well and historic preservationists. And so it's a way to um, amplify the conversation about design at the appropriate place in time, which is at the early ideation of a design project. Part of the goal is to actually expedite the review process and the delivery process. So I've sold this as a way to get development to happen faster and uh, at a higher level of discourse. And I will tell you as well, um, it's also about equity, right? And I want the affordable housing project on the far south side of Chicago to get as much attention and conversation about its design um, as a new high rise in the loop. And so it'll be interesting to see the docket uh, because the first dockets are 
two high-rise towers, and two five-story affordable housing projects uh, on the south and west side. I'm really excited. I know it's a culture change. You know, I will, I will just tell you, I feel, I feel the weight of trying to change the culture of a city of this size, and it is not a responsibility that you want to shoulder alone. And so the way that I've been taught in leadership is you share the work and you empower others uh, to work and to amplify the goals that you have. And so I now have 24 of Chicago's best and brightest who are also now concerned about the full, you know, built in natural environment and how we achieve excellence over the entire Chicago geography. And, you know, people have said, Maurice, you know, if there's nothing else you did, <laughs> if you, if this sticks, you will have changed the course and the quality of design for Chicago for a generation. So I'm, I'm super excited about it, uh, you know, um, and there they, they met uh, for the first time for their orientation in July. They'll have their first uh, full docket in um, August. And they are so excited to be a part of the conversation now about the design of the city of Chicago. Speaking of sharing, it's been a hallmark of your work. I mean, beginning as a city councilor and mayor in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then as director of planning in Detroit, to not only bring these various uh, actors together, the public sector, the community development organizations, the design talent, the development community, but also the citizenry. Uh, I, I've been struck by, you know, in following your career and, and, and talking to folks in Detroit about how in a context that was as, you know, as dire as one could imagine, you somehow were able to facilitate and build a culture of trust across these various actors. And I'm interested to, to ask you about that, you know, in the, in the time that we have remaining. I, on the one hand, I, I've just been struck by how in Detroit the success of that work has been based on the idea that each actor, each role, whether it be the civic institutions, the landowners, the private you know, development interests, the, the community development organizations, the, the, the philanthropic foundations, they each stepped up and played a role. And in part, that was based, as I understand it, on trust that had been built. Um, and in a context where, as we know, in the history of the American city, our relationships with these communities, especially communities of, of color, especially, you know, uh, portions of cities like the south side of Chicago that have been subject to some of the worst aspects of planning practice in the 20th century. Uh, there haven't always been um, environments or cultures of trust between, you know, the city elected and appointed officials and planning and these communities. So, so how do you build that trust as we've seen you do it in previous roles? And how would you describe the status of that project with respect to trust and the citizenry for this work uh, in Chicago? What a, what a great question. I will tell you, yes, uh, I'm very, very mindful of our design disciplines and how uh, what we have fraught on um, communities of color, you know, from the, you know, uh, interstate highway systems, um, urban renewal, um, public, public housing, uh, there's just been so much that has been policy driven that were um, race based uh, that we're um, still living with today. And so, you know, 
Chicago is a tale of two cities, uh, one white, one black, one invested in, one disinvested in. And then you go back and you look at 50 years of the public policy and you can see all of um, the evidence of that that's what the outcome was going to be. We, so we, we walk into the room and we don't have a lot of credibility. And so I think of engagement as the opportunity for us to rebuild trust in planning and design. Uh, every community meeting we have, every explanation we give, um, it's, um, it's a knowledge exchange between the knowledge of people who know their communities after decades of living there and the knowledge that we might have to share with them about the uh, power of design. And so, you know, I, I come from the academy. So for me, it's about teaching. And, you know, we all know we take, you know, very bright, inquisitive students uh, and expose them to ideas and concepts and they mature and develop and they become brilliant by access to that knowledge. So my thought is like, couldn't that work for Mr. Harris down the block or Mrs. Jones? And so I have always wanted to teach a wider audience than just those who have chosen this uh, vocation, the design vocations. And I always think of uh, it as a two-way street where, you know, and this might be part of my, you know, little bit of a history of uh, coming to places where I'm not from and I come as an outsider. Uh, and as an outsider, there's kind of no question that people who have been there know more about the place than you do. And so it's quite humbling. And this, I'm sure this goes back to being, you know, an expat, you know, living in Italy for 10 years. I know what it's like to be outside of a community and having to learn it from scratch and having the people in the room be more knowledgeable of the place than I am. And so I genuinely believe it's a knowledge exchange. I come, and they say I come to listen, I come to learn, and I hopefully, you know, come to impart what I've learned. And it's, uh, you know, there's this kind of creative friction there, right? Um, I don't come in as the resident expert. I, I, you know, I have knowledge to impart, but I also know that Mrs. Jones, who's lived in her house for 40 years, has the knowledge to impart to me. And so it's all, it's all about the kind of transparency of the design and development process. It is about um, exposing, kind of demystifying the stuff that we do and explaining it to ordinary people and trying to you know, get out of the lingo that we engage in, uh, in our disciplines to try to explain it to your Aunt May. I do it every day, and I'm sure some of this comes from uh, my political career, where in my early days in Charlottesville, I mean, I had to explain this passion that I had for design to just ordinary people who don't think about this every day. And I had to listen to a lot of folks who had ideas. Uh, and, you know, you had to unpack it and help them understand what, you know, the physical aspect of what they were describing in words you hear a hesitancy in my voice uh, because, you know, you can only move 
in our profession at the rate of trust. So, you know, if people don't trust you, uh, you can't move very fast. So you have to build trust. And to do that, you have to meet and you have to explain and you have to listen. Commissioner Maurice Cox, thanks so very much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. I love the conversation. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.